Trust the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, LawPay. The practice of law changed significantly in the past decade, and perhaps the biggest disruption arrived in March when the coronavirus pandemic forced most lawyers to leave their offices and work remotely. There's been challenges and fears for the profession, as well as the necessity to quickly change the way something has always been done. That's hard for lawyers. As part of a special series, the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered is asking lawyers about how they've done it and what they think will come next. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, and my guest today is Emily D. Baker, a former L.A. County Deputy District Attorney who later represented small businesses. During the pandemic, she made a big shift from representing businesses to doing legal commentary, and a year later, she has more than 95,000 subscribers on YouTube. Emily, welcome to the show. Stephanie, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Great. So uh, you are an influencer. (laughs) Can you tell our audience what that is for those who don't know? And can you also explain how influencers earn a living? Absolutely. And it's it's not ever something I thought that was in my uh, in my career trajectory of, of being an influencer. But influencers at the heart of it are really just um, you know, entrepreneurs that have a personal brand and all the people that you see, if you spend time online or on social media and you're like, how do they make money doing that? They're probably an influencer of some type. And there's lots of different ways to be an influencer. Some um, call themselves online entrepreneurs and, and sell services or digital products. Some really just have revenue through advertisements, brand deals, affiliate deals, and things like that, which is affiliate deals are essentially referral fees for products. And brands, companies are realizing that digital media and attention on digital is really taking up the real estate that used to be traditional radio, traditional television. So now that's where you're placing advertisements. Instead of just placing ads on television, Companies can place ads on social media, on YouTube, in videos, and with their favorite um, creators. And it niches down the audience because each creator or influencer has their own audience and their own relationship with their audience. So if you're a brand that's targeting, you know, women 25 to 45, someone like myself has an audience that is heavily female, heavily 25 to 45. If you're somebody who's looking for, you know, younger kids who like to play video games to place a pair of headphones with, you're going to look for a influencer who creates in the space of video games and Minecraft. So it's really shifting the way advertising and marketing works and placing traditional brand deals with different types of of media personalities or influencers. So that is, that is, there are lots of ways to make money, but through, for somebody like me, I make money on YouTube through ad revenue. And the amount of money that can be made on YouTube is underestimated by quite a lot of people, but it is staggering the amount of money that you can make um, every month through YouTube, just ad revenue. And then through brand deals, product placements, uh, sponsorship agreements, and things like that. But I also do consulting because as you grow in your, your, you know, audience or your profile, there are inevitably people who are like, hey, can I ask you a question about this or that? And so that branches into consulting and having that available as well. Well, this is, I guess, what I have to ask the rude question. 
in terms of doing what you do, and I know that you think for lawyers, is it a way to make a comparable living to practicing law? For me, it is. Of course, is. not everyone can do it. You have to have a certain <laughs> sparkle. But I mean, is it? For me, it is. I, I make more on YouTube than I made uh, as a deputy district attorney. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And when I left, I was over 10 years in. The thing with that is, one, it is it is something that takes time to build like any career. I can imagine that a, you know, associate 10 years in at a mid to large law firm, that might not be the case depending on the market that you're in. Um, if it, But there's, for me, there's no overhead, really, barely. There's no commute time. I enjoy doing it. I get to set my own schedule, my own life. And because I'm running my own business, I get the benefits of all of those uh, tax breaks with running your own business and am able to run quite a lot of things through my business. So it shifts my tax burden as well, which is really a great benefit. I love, I love that part of it. But yes, for me, I, I do make more than I did as a, as a deputy district attorney with 10 years in. Well, if you can try cases, is there a chance that those skills might lend well to being a podcaster? Because I, I feel confident that there's some people who might be great trial lawyers. I don't see them doing a successful podcast and YouTube channel, just for whatever reason. But are the skills kind of the same, perhaps? I feel like the skills are very similar. Um, to be able to connect with a jury is not dissimilar than connecting with an audience. There has to be a want to do it and a want to do it for yourself. But it also comes with, there has to be an awareness of what you're opening yourself up to if you're opening yourself up to a, a podcast, a YouTube channel, because you are creating content and putting it out there for the world to consume, criticize, <laughs> listen to, mm -hmm. and that's different than a lot of jury practice. A lot of jury practice, the jury's there, the judge is there, you know, opposing counsel, sometimes co-counsel and, and a defendant and in civil, a plaintiff and in criminal, uh, you know, an investigating officer. But it's not, it's not seen by the entire world and memorialized forever in most cases. Though I find the way I talk to my audience who calls themselves the law nerds is very similar to the way I talked to a jury, just uh, way less formal, <laughs> way, way <laughs> less formal. But yes. Yes. Podcasting was how I really started. I started my YouTube channel first, but I didn't really um, grow my YouTube channel and start growing on YouTube until my podcast started gaining traction. And podcasting is a great way to not necessarily have to put yourself on camera. And it's a great way for people to get to know you and how you think and how you communicate before they ever meet you. So for attorneys who need to communicate um, their skill level, their expertise, or even just share how the law is shaping our world. A podcast is a great way to do it. And you don't need a ton of equipment. You don't have to be on camera. And I find that the audience who really resonates toward podcasts like a bit of a longer form content, like more of an in-depth explanation and are are there to listen to a conversation. Translating that to other forms of social media is is another thing entirely. I'm curious, where do you have a sense of maybe which one of your uh, social media channels is most popular? Is it YouTube or is it the podcast? Oh, it's absolutely YouTube. It's absolutely YouTube. The podcast helped grow within entrepreneurial circles. And that's where I had been in my consulting work in the online business space, business marketing and entrepreneurial space with really small businesses and sometimes micro small businesses. And the podcast 
started is helping them understand the changing laws, things like AB5 in California, reminding online business owners about hiring. What's AB5, just so uh, our listeners know who are in California? Oh, absolutely. No, those in California will know. It was the legislature's rough (laughs) attempt to codify a Supreme Court decision that changed the test for independent contractors in California from the essentially the IRS test to a three-part ABC test. And then the legislature threw in everything in the kitchen sink into this <laughs> this new legislation I that see. caused quite a lot of uh, of conundrums, Uber sued um, multiple times. It, right. There were lots okay. of court involvement because instead of just taking a decision, they added in everything they could imagine, but it caused a lot of confusion for smaller businesses who had worked mostly with independent contractors, not always properly, but in the online space, people are like, no, I can just get an independent contractor to do that. And that's not always the case. So I I really used the podcast as a way to help educate people and just bring awareness that, hey, these laws are shifting. And if you have a business, you have to know, but small business owners don't always consider that they need to talk to an attorney. They always are like, okay, well, maybe I need a CPA to help with taxes, but rarely seek legal help in structuring their business in writing contracts and things like that. So that's how the podcast started. And then as the pandemic shifted and more was happening in pop culture, I started shifting into talking about pop culture as well, just for a break from all of the heaviness that was going on. And then for a break from election coverage, really. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to go back. Do you think with YouTube compared to podcasts, I do feel somehow that YouTube maybe has gotten even more popular during the pandemic. And do you think- Yes, It might be that more people are going to be watching and listening to YouTube less than podcast. YouTube is always gained on podcasts, but I'm just curious if you think it's gaining even more in terms of what we listen to, especially for like adults in like within the professional arena. I, I think podcasts have a very specific audience and people who love podcasts love podcast. But also in March, everyone stopped commuting all at the same time. And so you didn't have to just have a medium that was just in your ears or just in your car or just on your train ride. And YouTube viewership skyrocketed in March, 2020, and has just now started to kind of dip back to more normal levels as we're seeing people go back to a traditional workplace. But YouTube viewership has definitely changed over the last year and has grown substantially. And it's given a lot of YouTube creators the opportunity to grow. I don't think that's changing. YouTube is definitely putting a lot of energy into competing with other social media platforms, a lot of energy into things like live streaming. And There are people who in my audience say, you know what, I do a Friday night show who say, this is what I do on Friday nights. We get dinner, we sit down and we join you for your live stream. And it's a two hour stream every Friday. So that is in in place of going to the movies really that people will sit and join. And YouTube is more interactive depending on the type of content you make than a podcast. Because when I stream, people are also in my big chat and talking to each other, talking to me. So we're having more of a conversation than a podcast, which is a more passive listening experience. Right. So on your LinkedIn page, I thought you had a very interesting description. You say, I turn legal into English mixed with pop culture references and relatable stories. How does that get people to listen 
to information about the law. Because I'm just thinking as we're talking, and if a lawyer comes, gets on screen in a traditional way, it just talks about his or her business in a lawyerly way. I don't know if that's going to get a lot of listeners. And it might get them 20,000 listeners, but I don't know if it'll get them like 95,000, or should I say <laughs> watchers. Yeah, it's definitely different. And i that's one of the reasons I love pulling in pop culture, because the way I'm breaking down what's going on in law is breaking it down to what people want to talk about anyway. So if people want to know why Nike is suing little Nas X, which they didn't actually, because all of the headlines are like Nike sues little Nas X. I'm like, actually, we have the lawsuit here. That's not what this says at all. People really do want to understand the the next step of a story that they're seeing. And I'm finding that lawyers are becoming more aware of writing suits and writing motions that are going to be read in the public space or commented on. And there really? are, some, yes, there are great little moments in some of the recent lawsuits I've been covering, just kind of funny one-liners, um, a little bit of shadiness, uh, little, little quirps and quips. And it's been fun to see that there's a little bit of humor in some of the lawsuits I cover in the pop culture space. And I really do think lawsuits are becoming a branch of a PR strategy, especially when you look at something like Nike versus mischief. And we're seeing that play out in lawsuits that are not just written for the court, but also written in a way that an audience can understand them. And I kind of bring the two together and we use a lot of curse words on my channel, yeah. but we also <laughs> we also have our own vernacular. And so when people see a motion to preserve your evidence, they know it's a motion to not delete your SHI toot. And we talk about that <laughs> and, and we break it down into regular language. And so people are like, oh, I saw there, we got a cease and desist at work. And there's this, this notice at the bottom that says you have to preserve. And I'm like, that's it. That's the, the preservations, the, the don't delete your, your, your ish. And your so, yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> so we talk about that. I get messages almost regularly now of people saying, Hey, I was um, on a call with, you know, at work with lawyers and they were talking about diversity jurisdiction. And I remembered that we talked about this in a YouTube case and I actually knew generally what it was and why it was relevant to what I was talking about. So it's helping people understand concepts. Of course, that's not enough for them to decide their own legal issues, their own lawsuit. It's understanding these bigger concepts in a very basic way. So when they hear these things, they go, oh, I, I generally know what that is. And, and feel like they have some understanding of the laws that govern all of our lives so much. If a lawyer wanted to hire you as a consultant to get their story out, that's work you do as well, right? So when I do consulting work, it's not necessarily PR work, but it's helping mm -hmm. lawyers understand how lawsuits and litigation play with social media, particularly if they're representing someone who is of note that the lawyer might not understand. There are lawyers who might not get that if you're representing TikTok or ABC, what that will mean if a lawsuit is filed with their name attached to it, how quickly it will be on court listener, how fast it will be discussed on social media, and how it will be judged and perceived. Most audiences don't hang around for the answer. All of them are there for the complaint. By the time and that something drives gets lawyers <laughs> crazy, right? Because yes. they want it. Yes. yes. 
Mm-hmm. By the time it gets answered, everybody's moved on to something else. And so that's helping helping attorneys understand how that works and what that looks like in these particular spaces. And even sometimes helping them understand what the platforms are like and what they can get from the platforms. Because as a DA, I did search warrants on the platforms and we're seeing more and more things like defamation cases happening over these social media platforms. And if the lawyer doesn't understand the platform, it's hard to understand everything that you're going to need to get. Do I talk about those on YouTube if I've consulted? Not always, unless I make that very clear to my audience, hey, I've consulted on this and I'm not working on it. If I'm working on something actively, I don't give comment on it. I see what you're saying. So it's not like they couldn't hire you to talk about their case in a positive way on your channel. That's not what you're here for. Okay, got it. Can you tell our listeners, how did you make the work shift during the pandemic? I mean, how did you already had your channels, right? But it just kind of blew up. It did in a blow good way. up it, in a very good way. And I had more time during the pandemic because most of my clients that I was working with were also struggling. Online businesses were very unclear of how business or life was going to look through the first at least, you know, three, four months of the pandemic. Yeah. And so I had you know, contracts that I mutually canceled with clients because it's like, well, we don't need this now. We don't know how long we're going to be locked down. It's There's no point in going forward because our projects aren't going forward. And I had more time to actually start diving into things that I was interested in. During the pandemic, my husband and I sold a business that we were, well, he was running in California and we decided to move out of California as well. So it gave kind of a natural break And during that break, the podcast started to pick up and people started asking me, you know, if you're going over these documents, we'd love to see them as you're going over them. I'm like, oh, I could do that on YouTube. And when Kanye Mm -hmm. West leaked all his recording industry contracts on Twitter, I was like, oh, this is a perfect time to pull up these documents, go through them and talk about what the words Mm -hmm. of them mean. This is hundreds of thousands of dollars of legal work in these contracts. When did that happen? I oh, that, remember it, that but I don't happened, remember exactly when. Gosh, um, August, September. Okay. When he started posting all of his contracts onto Twitter, railing about the music oh, industry and okay. yeah. and, and yeah. peed on his Grammy on Twitter. <laughs> that all, that happened. But speaking of, <laughs> oh, go ahead. I was just going to say I, those I are just, contracts we don't normally get to see, right? They're, they're normally between the artist and counsel and the studio and counsel. And so it was very interesting to see these uh, extensive contracts being just put out on Twitter. I think so often lawyers are afraid to talk about something that they don't have direct knowledge or they don't want to get sued or they don't. But I understand that. But sometimes also that fear of talking about things can make what you talk about somewhat dry. Do you ever... I mean, how do you decide what you can talk about and what's like a terrible thing to talk about and what you should say and what you shouldn't say in terms of with your lawyer hat on? <laughs> I stick, well, my audience knows I don't give advice. Um, we're mm-hmm. giving commentary. So if there's something I don't have as much knowledge of, I mean, I'm talking about the the Girardi bankruptcy. I've I've taken a lot of bankruptcy classes in law school. I found bankruptcy fascinating, but I well, didn't... you tore it up on that. I listened to your <laughs> podcast about him and all the uh, lit finance groups, and it's like yep. 
Yeah, you read a lot of stuff. I, but I never, and I let my audience know, look, I didn't practice in bankruptcy. We're going through these documents and breaking down what they mean. If lawyers are trained to do anything, it's to read and evaluate information. So I'm not giving advice on how to how to proceed in your own bankruptcy. I'm reading, I'm reading what these debts are and sitting there going, well, where do you guys think the money went? And and what do you think is mm-hmm. going to happen this season on Real Housewives when Erica has to face some of these questions? So just going through the documents, talking about what they mean, making what they mean make sense in context of everything else going on in the cases, talking about what we can know, what we can't know, what's allegations, what a bankruptcy trustee is. Those are things that are kind of within the realm of any lawyer to understand because we're not giving a deep dive and we're not giving advice on how to litigate in this. We're reading how other people are litigating and and commenting on it. And do you ever worry, I mean, sometimes some podcasters who aren't lawyers have wound up getting sued because somebody said something on their show that somebody thought was objectionable. And so it got kicked, but they still, you know, had to, they had to pay an attorney to get it kicked. Is that something you ever worry about or the things you talk about that somebody might like file a nonsense lawsuit against you? I mean, it's in the online space. That's something that can always happen. I know other mm-hmm. legal commentators, particularly in the the law tube space that have been sued. I've been mentioned in one of the lawsuits that I cover multiple times. Um, I've had mm-hmm. people threaten, well, not just threaten my life and my children's lives on, on social media, but mm. also threaten to sue me. And I know the boundaries of what I can and can't say. So I'm not particularly worried about it because if somebody wants to go there, then they can go there and I'll hire a lawyer <laughs> in whatever gotcha. jurisdiction and and go from there. But it's, I really try to give commentary on what we're seeing play out, particularly in documents and not to, it's not really my place to judge how a thing should go. It's my place to yeah. talk about what is happening and what the surrounding contexts are. I've been talking about a little bit how trials work with some of the large uh, cases that have been in the news. And not really talking about the evidence, but talking about what the process is to pick a jury, what that's like when you're the attorney standing there, what it's like to prepare a closing argument, what happens after that, because I find that there is a vast gap in understanding of how the actual systems work and how they work on law and order. And that's something that I hope to bridge the gap between what we see on television (laughs) and now what we see on YouTube and what's like, what's real and what's TV's rendering of what's real. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Let's take a quick break. And when we get back, I want to talk to you about exactly how you do help people have a better understanding of how legal issues work. And I also want to talk about how you pick issues to talk about on your shows. So let's take a break and we'll be right back. LawPay makes it easy to securely accept credit, debit, and e-check payments from anywhere. Because LawPay was developed specifically for the legal industry, your earned and unearned fees are properly separated and your IOLTA account is protected against third-party debiting. To learn more about the only online payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, visit lawpay.com slash ABA. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and my guest today is Emily Baker, a lawyer who shifted from representing businesses to being an influencer during the pandemic. And today she has more than 95,000 YouTube subscribers. Emily, we were talking about how you pick your stories uh, for what you're going to talk about on YouTube. 
how how do you do that? You're going for what's popular, right? But how do you how do you decide what you're going to talk about? I generally try to pick things that I find that there's something that can be helpful in it or something that is of um, public interest in it or specific interest to YouTube because I've covered cases that are, you know, YouTubers suing YouTubers, which is very much interesting to people on the platform, not as interesting to the rest of society. And I love the pop culture space because there aren't a legal, a lot of legal commentators that dive into pop culture coverage. And it's also things that I'm really interested by. If I'm going to spend sometimes months pulling court documents and seeing what filings are coming next, I want to be interested in the stories and the parties involved in the stories as well. Cause we don't stop after the complaint. We keep going. I keep touching back with these cases month after month as they progress on. So I really go by my own interest. And if I can be helpful, my audience will absolutely let me know if they want to hear about a particular story. So I also take requests from uh, the group of law nerds because they let me know if they want to hear about something. And I take that into consideration as well. Well, and do you think maybe that's a big difference in what's changing in our world that a lot of different professions don't listen to? I think journalists still have a hard time really listening to what the audience wants to hear and going with it as opposed to us telling them what we think they should know. And I think that's probably true in the law as well. And do you think that's really changing? And you can't assume anymore that you know best for what your audience wants to hear because they will tell you what they want to hear. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's one of the things I like the most because it takes a lot of the the stress away from it. And I will say, and I polled my audience, I pulled them on Twitter and I pulled them on YouTube. There's a great feature in, in a YouTube channel that called the community tab where you can com- connect directly with your community. And I asked them, um, hey, this week, this, this, and this are going on. What do you guys wanna hear about first? And they will absolutely let me know. Sometimes with 20,000 plus votes on a topic and I'm like, okay, this is, this is for sure what you wanna hear about. Mm. And then there's a few key stories that, we're always following along. For my channel right now, the Britney Spears conservatorship is something I continue to follow. The Girardi cases are something that I am never going to stop following because Mm -hmm. I'm too deeply invested at this point in the amount of time I've read these documents. And I'm also a little, still a little horrified with all of it. Uh, And those are some of the two big ones. There's also a very interesting suit in New York with Haley Page, a wedding dress designer, suing uh, JLM Couture, her employer, over right now really intellectual property of her name. And the hot topic was a temporary restraining order over her Instagram account because her Instagram handle was her name, but she sold the trademark rights to her name to her employer. And it is really touched on A, a personality that was on television, B, social media, and C, intellectual property rights and what you can and can't sell and what those contracts look like. Because to be perfectly honest, her employment contract was very well written and very clearly said that she was selling the rights to her name. So those kinds of things are cases that we touch back in every few weeks to see what's been filed and and update update the audience. Because now everybody's invested and wants to see how these cases resolve. And sometimes that can be a very long process. And did you did you practice copyright law when you were in private practice? Uh, some. I definitely worked with copyrights and trademarks in the online space. And then if I needed other attorneys consulted with others to bring in, 
but not it's I've not defended things to the USPTO and and the likes of that. No. Okay, because I was watching uh, your video about, as you mentioned earlier, um, Little Nas and the Satan shoes, the so-called Satan shoes. Um, How do you (laughs) research your story? Because I was thinking, you know, if you're not like in the in that realm, it's, it's not like you can just run, you know, if could run in and do it because it's a it's a heavy area. And even if that is your main practice area, it's complicated to explain in plain language to people who don't practice in that area. So how do you research and get ready to talk about them? It absolutely can be complicated. But again, because it's commentary for me, I will look at when I look at the the complaint or the filing document, what are the couple key cases that they've pointed out that are helpful to their case and go look at those cases in the context around them and also look at the concepts of law that they are explaining and mostly break down like this is what they're alleging is happening. This is what they're alleging their rights are. And this is where they're arguing. And then when we get the next filing, we'll see what the other side is saying. I think it may be this or that. And it's really because it's not something I'm practicing, I don't find it that hard to bring it down to everyone's level to just understand, look, if you look at the Nike swoosh, you believe that comes from Nike. That's a concept that people can really understand once they understand the purpose of trademark is really identifying source of goods. As I say it on my channel, who made this ish? Where is this ish coming from? Whose is it? (laughs) You think it's Nike's because you see the swoosh. So really taking it down to a very, very fundamental level. And I'm sure attorneys can watch watch my stuff and be like, well, we've left out an awful lot here. I'm like, yeah, yes, yes, we have. There is a lot of nuance here, but the point is a general understanding. And that's why I have 95,000 followers and you don't. But it's it's not to practice. I'm not I'm not advising Nike right. on how to file their lawsuit. It's to help everyone understand these these broader concepts. Um, and then if we need to get into the nuance of it, then I will get into the nuance of it. But that's not always needed for commentary to understand basic facts like Nike didn't actually sue Little Nas X, despite what all of the headlines said. Well, and I was thinking we're kind of putting the cart after the horse here, but um, can you tell our readers quickly, because I know you can, about Little Nas and the Satan Shoes and, and Nike? <laughs> I loved this case so much because I really think that we're seeing this case kind of exemplifies to me this um, match of legal strategy and PR strategy. And that's my assumption of what uh, what Nike was doing. But this this group I had never heard of called Mischief. They're an art collective out of Brooklyn, New York. They modify different products and sell them as higher end goods. And they've done this with um, a pair of Birkenstocks, but they made Birkenstock sandals out of Hermes Birkin bags. And so they cut down bags and made them into this iconic Birkin shoe and sold those. They made a a Nike Jesus shoe, and then the Satan shoes. Now the Satan shoes, they sold 666 pairs. Well, they ended up only being allowed to sell 665 pairs because of a TRO, but I digress. And they had put, um, they had painted on them and stitched things on them that were more, they said, kind of devil iconography, Bible verses and 666s and upside down crosses. And they had written Little Nas X and Mischief on the back because it was a collaboration between the two. Where I think this went 
sideways for mischief is that all of the marketing photos just had little Nas X holding up a black Nike shoe that had been modified with that giant white Nike swoosh with nothing else. Red background, little Nas X's face, and the Nike shoe. And the internet spending all of seven seconds to make a determination went, oh my God, Nike is selling satanic shoes. We hate Nike. And the outrage was immediate. People didn't look deeper into seeing did Nike really collaborate with Little Nas X? Who's actually making these shoes? And it was very apparent if you wanted to buy the shoes, you had to buy them through Mischief's proprietary app, that they were um, not being sold through Nike stores, that they were limited edition. They were sold out in a minute once they went on sale. But the headlines were, you know, Nike Satan shoes. And so I'm not surprised that Nike literally two days later filed a lawsuit saying, we have nothing to do with these shoes. We didn't modify them. We didn't approve them. We're not, we're not allowing you to use our, our swoosh and our trademark rights to, to distribute these. And the marketing campaign worked well, I think, for mischief. Everyone was talking about them. I'm like, look, when you've got a 40-something-year-old mom talking about this underground art collective in Brooklyn, your marketing has worked. <laughs> we all know who you are now. And Nike didn't have a choice, I don't think, other than to file a lawsuit. And the first page and a half of their complaint says, Nike did not approve these. Nike is not affiliated with these, at least seven times in plain language. So Nike argued their case to the public through their lawsuit very effectively. Their lawyers wrote it very clear, very concise, and very much told the story of the fact that they didn't approve these shoes. And then it shifts the headlines. So the headlines has gone from, you know, little Nas X Nike Satan shoe to Nike sues over Satan shoes. And that, at least for the public who's spending six seconds looking at a tweet goes, oh, Nike suing, maybe they didn't approve those. And it helps change the conversation online because the amount of outrage on, on social media about these shoes was swift, but nobody looked into it to see that Nike didn't actually make them. And then they got a temporary restraining order granted. And then everyone miraculously settled the case a week later and it's over. But also, I think, as you said on uh, your show on YouTube, by the time they got the TRO, the shoes were all sold out, right? This not only sold out, but sold out and had shipped. I think Mischief was aware that they had pushed Nike too far. The last pair of shoes, they only sold 24. The Jesus shoe, they sold 24 of. This was over 600 pairs of shoes. The marketing campaign was tied into a new music video that had dropped, and the new music video was already controversial in and of itself, and the shoes are prominently displayed in the music video. So this, on Mischief's end, was a coordinated, collaborated marketing campaign around Little Nas X, his music, and these shoes, and the only way Nike could undo, I think for them, the damage to their perceived brand reputation was to sue over it. But by the time they got the TRO, the shoes were out and they resolved it um, behind the scenes and released a press statement saying, you know, we've we've resolved it and we've offered a voluntary recall. Those shoes are selling for like $6,000 on eBay. Oh, no yeah. one is voluntarily recalling this limited edition shoe that has become a, a moment in pop culture. Nike, I think, achieved their goal of saying, hey, we didn't approve this. And they got that story out more so than I think just a press release would have. Well, how do you think in terms of if you are a lawyer and you want to get uh, your client's story out in a way that's beneficial to your client, what are some ways to do that in uh, on YouTube, on Instagram, on podcasts 
that maybe are not thought of very much by lawyers because it's not traditionally been done. Absolutely. I think understanding who your client is and where they have traction, if it is a if it is an individual, a brand like Nike, the world media is going to pick it up. It's not going to be a problem. But depending on who your client is, where is the traction around them and who's going to be talking about them? Is that going to be on Reddit? Is that going to be on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Clubhouse? And keeping in mind that when, if you're writing a complaint, that yes, you're writing for the court, but the introduction and beginning of a complaint can very well tell your story in a way that people can understand and read because websites like Court Listener put a lot of these documents out without cost and people can pull them up. You also have quite a lot of people in different communities who do commentary who are familiar with how to use Pacer and will pull up federal suits. The amount of kind of non-lawyers that are able to navigate pulling lawsuits and reading them is is quite incredible, actually. So it's really <laughs> democratized access to law with online filing systems. And knowing who's going to be reading it and sharing it, knowing um, how you want to tell that story, and sometimes coordinating that with a press release. And there's nothing wrong with sending that to the people who cover your client, to the reporters in that space, to the commentators in that space, to sometimes even a tip to a subreddit group I've seen lawyers make use of. So it really Mm. depends. I hate saying that, but it's so true. It just depends on the client and the need. And sometimes PR and working with a PR team can be helpful if you want to win the PR war, particularly if you're a company going up against an influencer, and we're seeing this in the Haley Page lawsuit playing out, she has taken directly to the consumer on her social media platforms. And the company early on had not done that. It's much harder for a company to tell their story and to have an audience empathize with them versus just an individual saying this big bad company has taken my name away from me. Well, that's not quite the entire story, but you have mm-hmm. to dig deeper to get to what the real story is. And and lawyers need to be aware of this to, I think, best serve their client because it's not just how this is being served in court anymore. And though lawyers all hate the court of public opinion, the court of public opinion can be where your client loses or gains uh, following money, brand deals. And we're seeing it across social media, how quickly brands are being called on to step away from influencers, athletes, or figures that the public has decided have a problematic viewpoint, opinion, behavior that they're being alleged to have done. And that's something that lawyers need to be aware of, how these things will play out. So Emily, that's everything that I had to ask you today. I want to thank you so much for your time. Where do you want listeners to find you at on social media? Absolutely. I'm at the Emily D. Baker all over social media. The videos are on YouTube and I am active on both Twitter and Instagram. So you can find at the Emily D. Baker just about anywhere. Great. And listeners, I want to thank you for joining us today. If you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered.